I love my story because it's the exact example of progress is not linear and you have to love the journey that you are on. And I absolutely loved every step of the journey. And I truly believe that the bad races really keep us humble and make us appreciate the days that do go our way. If every time we lined up, we knew we were gonna crush our goal, where would the fun be in that? I hope people hear this wherever they're sitting now, and it helps them see that a lot can happen over a several year period. So wherever you are right now, and wherever you wanna go, just believe in yourself and get to work because who knows where you're gonna be a year, two years, three years, four years from now. There's never been a goal that I've set that I just like achieved right away, but that's what's made me the human I am for the experiences that I've had, and I wouldn't trade any of them for anything. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 69 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. From BQ to OTQ in four years, what an amazing, inspiring journey Mary Denholm has been on. From aiming for a BQ in only her second marathon and nailing a 303 in 2016 to running a 242 at CIM, December 8th of 2019, punching her ticket to run the trials in Atlanta. Mary's time at CIM seated her 189th for Atlanta where she rocked a personal record time of two hours, 41 minutes, and eight seconds on a demanding course in swirling winds, finishing 51st woman that day. That outstanding result on a tough day against a stacked field earned her a start in the pro field in Boston. This upcoming April 18th, 22, Marathon Monday, Patriots Day. Exciting stuff. Her progress and journey haven't been linear. And all those races and life experiences have forged her mental grit and resiliency. Mary had a tough day at grandma's and nearly dropped out, but decided to help a bunch of other women go sub three that day. At Twin Cities, Mary ran with her friend Liz Cammy for 25 miles, but couldn't stay with her over the last mile. Liz qualified and Mary missed her OTQ by just 13 seconds. But by far the most impactful, in February, just a month before her big trials race in Atlanta, she was asked to move out of her marital home, ending her 10-year marriage. She loaded up her truck and dog Max and moved to Flagstaff. Bouncing around, crashing on friends' couches and Airbnbs, getting very little sleep due to the stress. Not running for a week and missing a last key long long run workout piled on even more anxiety. She opened up to her coach, and he reassured her that the fitness was there, and some of her close training partners gave her support and made her feel loved at a time when she needed it most. Mary's a beacon of positivity and a great ambassador for our sport. She dreams big, shares her goals, and inspires and encourages others to believe in themselves and get to work. She has a great partnership with her coach and is also coaching and help athletes hit their goals for lift, run, perform. Stoked to see Mary get after it in the pro field at Boston and take aim at the new trial standard of sub 237. I hope you all enjoy this convo as much as we did. So let's dive on in 
and take a listen. Denholm, welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, excited, excited to get a chance to talk to you. So, uh, lots been going on. So, tell everybody at home uh, where you're from. Uh, I know you're on the West Coast these days, but I don't know exactly where. I live in Santa Barbara, California. Ah, so we've got some nice training weather going right now, right? Yes, definitely. I can't complain about winter anymore, although I have lived previously in real winter climates. Yes, you have. And that's actually the perfect place because I usually ask, that's one of the first questions I ask guests, like kind of where did you grow up? What was family life life? And I know you had the whole Vermont, Maryland <laughs> connection going on. So talk a little about your family life growing up as a kid and, and what that was like for you. Sure. I grew up in Maryland, uh, mom and dad. I have a younger sister, Molly, and we spent a significant amount of time in Vermont as well. My family loved to ski. And in fact, I've often said I was more of a skier than a runner growing up. And so we split time between Vermont and Maryland. And I actually, in high school, transferred up to a ski academy in Vermont. My goal was to race division one in college for skiing and uh, was able to do it. But I, like I said, spent a lot of time in real winter climates. Uh, I did run cross country in high school as well. And I did ultimately decide to run cross country in college also. Very cool. So what part of Maryland? Sparks. Okay. And Vermont was up near Burlington. Is that where you guys were close to or? So the mountain I grew up skiing at is Okemo and I went to Okemo Mountain School Ski Academy. Uh, so I would transfer up during the winter months, like November to April and then transfer back to my high school for the rest of the year. And when I went to college, it was in Burlington, St. Michael's College. Cool. So what was that like? Was that fun kind of being away like at the academy? Because it's almost like being in college, but you're in high school, right? I mean, that's got to be in an interesting experience, right? Not the whole year, but for, for a good chunk, right? It was. And, you know, it was very much geared to if you want to ski race or um, snowboard in college will get you there. So really interesting way to go about high school and training because we would ski every morning and then we would have classes in the afternoon and we would lift, we would sometimes run as well. So it was a very packed day and I learned a lot about what it takes to, to get to that level. <laughs> That's really cool. And so you were, you were like ski racing were you downhill, like Alpine, like the the serious, like high-speed stuff, like Lindsey Vaughn and that kind of stuff, or are you more technical, like slalom and stuff? Slalom and giant slalom were Ooh. the main ones that I did. And yes, everyone always thinks I'm talking about Nordic, and I should clarify, it was downhill skiing, which is not at all related to running. I mean, they're like, that's a strength. In, in, like this is endurance, that's strength. So they're very different um, workouts. I did learn to Nordic ski actually after college and loved it. That's super cool. Now, do you ever, did you ever get timed or clocked like at your fastest speed? Do you ever know the fastest you've ever gone, like coming down the mountain? I know you probably know your fastest times like in races, but did they ever get you on a jugs gun? So you know, like how fast you were going? 
You know, I know we had it out there one day, like a radar type gun. And I don't remember because I never, I really didn't do like downhill, like the all out, like straight down a mountain. I was more technical. So the giant slalom and slalom, I mean, probably 40 miles an hour, but that's not super fast for their, for alpine skiing. Yeah. It's still crazy fast though. For even people that ski technically that are good skiers that can even do black diamonds, it's still really, it's still really fast. And, um, so you were, even though you didn't think about it at the time, but you're developing such a strong core. I mean, your, your glutes, your legs, your hamstrings, like all your big muscle groups, your hips, all those muscles had to be so strong to support you, your base for turns and everything. And when you have that strength, were you guys doing like a lot of squats and a lot of strength training and all that kind of stuff? Yes, absolutely. Cool. And uh, I do remember it was in your Olympic trials bio, or it was an article about you from the Olympic trials. But I do remember reading that you ran your first mile <laughs> with your dad when you were two years old. So yes. is that absolutely true? That is absolutely bananas. I absolutely love that. That's crazy. He, was had, your me dad running, like, he had me running it too. He had me skiing it too. Like we were doing sports from a young age in my family. <laughs> Amazing. So was your dad like freakishly athletic and your mom, or is it just him or like, what was the whole family, you know, dynamic like? I mean, everyone was active. My parents loved to ski and that's why they took us from Maryland to Vermont so many weekends. And, you know, what, what started with this weekend warrior thing of driving up, you know, Friday night when we would get out of school, drive up, ski Saturday, Sunday, back to school on Monday, turned into longer trips, like vacations and, you know, winter break holidays. But yeah, I mean, they were both very active and it showed in me and my sister. Very cool. Was she younger or older? Younger. And she was athletic too? She played sports? Yes. And was the whole family like super competitive? Because I get the feeling like, yes, if your dad's getting you running a mile at two years old and getting you out on skis, I'm getting the feeling that this is a competitive athletic family. And what about like game night and stuff? Were you guys competitive at that stuff too? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So it was all business at your house, man. You better you better come ready. If you're, I, like, if you're, I like to think back and and say I handled defeat with grace, but I'm not so sure they would say the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. My brothers and I, somebody was always cheating at Monopoly or like stealing cash or, you know, taking a a deed card or something. We're always like watching each other, like super closely, like who was, (laughs) who was doing X, Y, Z. So fun stuff. So you, you're actually like kind of a very interesting high school, you know, your high school years split between the Academy and that, um, but that'd be fun because you get to meet, you got your ski friends up there in Vermont, then you got your other friends back in Maryland. So you're kind of like, you know, building a nice network for yourself at an early age, right? Yes. And I'm still friendly with, you know, both sets, um, the skiers and also, you know, my friends from high school as well. Very cool. So you get the super early start in running and you obviously like, have real talent in running too. Um, you ran, like, what was your introduction to running? Like from say grade school, high school, give a little background on that. Sure. Uh, so elementary school, just like field day events, I was always fast and beat a lot of the boys. And I don't remember, I want to say I was in maybe fourth grade. I did a mile race at my school and it was my high school was on this giant hill and we ran all the way down half mile turnaround came all the way back up and I paced myself really well and I 
let everyone go on the downhill. And then I just caught everyone on the uphill. And they actually had this little tape that you that you could break. And I broke the tape and my mom snapped a picture. She wasn't expecting me to win the race. Like, no, no, I was not expecting to win the race. She was not expecting me to win the race because it was boys and girls and it was a fun run and I crushed it. (laughs) And after that, my elementary school, like middle school, didn't have a cross country or track team. So I just played standard sports uh, like basketball, uh, field hockey, lacrosse, because my school required us to do one each season. And when I got to high school, I wanted to run. I was interested in running and there was only a cross country team. There wasn't a track team. So I ran cross country all four years. And then really I just felt burnt out and my priority was skiing anyway. So I wasn't intending to run in college. And I had talked to some colleges, some division one schools had been talking to me. University of Vermont was one of the main ones that was talking to me, but I wasn't fast enough as a skier to ski for University of Vermont. They're one of the best in the country. Uh, So I was looking at um, St. Michael's. They were also division one, but like kind of middle of the pack. So that that's what took me to St. Michael's was skiing. I could ski division one for them. And they were actually part of that conference for, I guess, forever. They've been a part of that division one skiing conference, but all other sports are division two. And ultimately I did decide to run cross country after I started and I did run all four years, but I almost didn't do it. And I'm actually very thankful that what happened was the coach at university of Vermont contacted the St. Michael's coach and told them, um, that I was trying to not run. (laughs) And next thing I knew the cross country coach at St. Michael's was talking to me and I, remember I went for a run and I felt so out of shape. And I said, I should probably get some cardio back for skiing and ultimately then ran all four years and loved it. (laughs) It's so funny how those things can work out. You know, you figure you're just going to ski. That's what you were more interested in. That what ignited, you know, the fire or the passion, or at least more so at that age. And, you know, then running ends up like kind of coming back into the picture. But uh, I think we're going to need that photo of you breaking the tape, you know, going up the hill and taking every, taking everybody out. We're going to need that photo for the podcast episode graphic or at least put it into the collage. So we're going to you're going to have to send send me that one. I'm going to have to it's see it. It's on my social. It's on my Instagram somewhere. I just got to scroll back. I love it. I love it. And um you had a really good relationship with your coach, right? I know you um had mentioned we were sharing some information back and forth we're coming on. She was a really good runner. She was a All-American at Middlebury, which is where my son graduated. So um talk a little about that relationship a little because that kind of, you know, while you were still doing your skiing and into it, that got you into cross country, which kind of sets a table for everything else with your running, you know, as we move forward. Her name's Molly Peters. She's still the cross country and uh, coach at St. Michael's. And she came on actually my sophomore year, but I remember she preached so much balance, uh, for everyone. You can run well, be a student, go out on Saturday night with your friends and have balance in your life and do your best. And I don't, I didn't fully live that. Um, but it's, been carried with me. Right. Like I did have fun in college. I enjoyed my experience, but like I was very laser focused once I was deciding to do cross country all four, all four years, it's like, you're going to do it the best of your ability and like be very focused on this. Um, cause that's just like how I am as a person. It's like, 
I go all in on something. I can't just half-ass anything I do. It's like, I'm all in. So that's always something that I'm trying to be aware of is, am I balanced? I'm trying to be a balanced person as to work, as to running, as to relationships, everything. So I think balance is a pursuit for all of us. And it's something we have to always be vigilant of to make sure that we're not out of balance. It's very easy, I think, to fall out of balance. But that was something that struck me. That was the first time I had had a coach who really talked about that. I mean, it's such a great lesson to learn at such an early age too, because I think um, a lot of the issues with runners who do get burnt out or, I mean, I was, I was a college baseball player, so I didn't run till like my mid thirties. I was very late, you know, to the sport in terms of when I uh, came into it and, and found my love and passion for the sport. I always loved running for all my other sports. You know, I wrestled, I played football, you know, played baseball. Um, but that's a great lesson because there's so many coaches out there that are just so hardcore and, you know, you need to be this way to run. You need to be this way to swim. You need to be this way to be a gymnast. You need to look this way. Um, you need to be fo more focused. It's all about like getting their athletes to give 100% to what they're coaching for, for the university. And what, what marvels me is that some of these are division three or division two. You know, a lot of these kids have really no chance of becoming a pro athlete. And yet, the coaches tend to, in some cases, there are many great ones, make it more about themselves than the athletes. And here you have a coach who was a really good athlete herself, who's preaching to be well-rounded and to um, enjoy the other things. And man, if more coaches were uh, putting that kind of message out there, you'd have a lot more healthy kids competing in college and wanting to stay with sports. And now, you know, not only are you an amazing runner yourself, but you're also coaching. So I'm sure that left its mark on you for even how you approach um, your own athletes that you work with. I mean, do you, do you feel that that shaped it in some degree, you know, not to get all into your coaching now, but, you know, just as a general question, you know, in terms of like how you talk with your athletes, speak with your athletes, approach like your relationship with your own athletes today. Absolutely. And just relaxing and trusting the training and trusting that this is nothing happens on a quick timeline, right? Like progress takes years. And so to have a more balanced approach, like you can balance training with a very fulfilling life and other aspects, you know, work, family, vacations, you know, if you're going through school, sometimes running, you know, takes a back burner because you're pursuing your professional degree. Um, but yeah, balance is important for everything. And I wish more coaches would stress how running is really there for your entire life, right? Like it doesn't end when you graduate from college. In fact, it's literally just beginning. And what we're seeing with men and women is they're running their best as masters, a lot of people. So, I mean, it's really there for you for life if you can stay healthy. And by healthy, I mean physically and mentally. Like, you know, injury-free is just as important as preventing mental burnout. Yeah, no question. Because I think we tend to hear so much when we follow each other on Instagram. And there's many other layers of social of how runners follow each other. We have Strava. We have platforms where our training is out there. And we're sharing that information as well, too. And um, I find way too many people, they're just they're so freaked out about what they're going to put out there or about a workout or something else. It's like, good Lord, man, it's a run, man. You went out for a run. Do you, did you feel better when you came back? Like then when you left, like, you know, I end my shows, keep lacing them up, keep getting out the doors. Remember to stay in the fight. Like, it's really simple. Like 
the fight is every day, you know, when you're tired or you had a stressful day and you know, the, the hours are starting to get compressed and it's getting later in the day and you're starting to feel that stress come on. Like, Oh my God, I didn't get my running yet. Well, for me, it's like, that's my win. Okay. If I can just figure out whether it's at 10 o'clock at night or at, you know, in the morning before my onslaught onslaught of things hit me, like, when am I going to get this accomplished? Okay. I know that the minute I do, I'm going to feel better. The rest of the day is going to only go better. It's not going to go worse. And, you know, workouts are workouts, you know, people lose their minds over one key workout or missing a tempo run or one long run. And they think like the world's going to come to an end, or if they've had a perfect training cycle that they're automatically guaranteed, they're going to run their fastest Boston marathon, or they're going to run their fastest Olympic trials qualifying time. Like none of these things are guaranteed. And, you know, like what she's talking about, that balance, if we all have more of that in our lives, we are going to run better. Okay. Um, and that's just a great lesson that she imparted to you. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, that it's still something that's with you and, uh, you're, you're thinking about it even in your own life today. Um, even with all the success you've had with your running. Yes. And just to your point about Strava, you know, no one knows what you're doing on a given day anyway. Like, no, I mean, unless you're like putting up a picture of your training plan and like, here's what I'm trying to hit. Like no one actually knows. And people get so caught up in appearing fast all the time. Like you need to slow down your easy runs. And I always say that that's two of my best pieces of advice as a coach is slow down. What are you doing? Why are you running so fast on this easy day? Like that's not where you're gaining fitness. That's actually impairing you gaining fitness and making progress, slow down. No one cares how slow you're running your easy runs except you. And so I just wish people would realize that. And then my other piece of advice is if you're feeling something, just take a day off, like just rest, don't run through anything. Like it's never worth it. So balance again. Yeah. Those are, those are some great, great pieces of advice. And, you know, you think when you get older, you're wiser, but you're not, (laughs) you have more experience and you should be more practical and you should learn these things as you go along. But we get injured at my age. Um, why we all need a coach. Yeah. I have a coach too. Currently I've been with him for three years. His name is Nick Klostava. He helps me. We're all biased when it comes to our own training. We need someone to help us. I, I truly, I truly believe that. Yeah, I think that's one of the most powerful points that anybody, when they come on the show, like I want to reinforce that point all the time. So thank you for bringing that and, and driving it home because we all have blind spots, okay? We don't have those blind spots about our close friends. We know them. We care about them very much. We don't want Mary to get injured. We don't want our friend Greg to get injured. We don't want our friend Jeremy to get injured. And if we think that they're pushing it into the red line zone and we know their training and we're sharing with each other. So we know certain facts about them. And we also know things about that are going on in their lives. They're having stressful work moments. Maybe they're having some tough times in their relationship. So we're the first ones because we care about those people. Hey, take a day off, back off. But would you do it yourself if you're coaching yourself? And the answer is no. Okay. Most of us left to our own devices will make that mistake almost all the time, not all the time, but almost all the time. But when we have somebody else who's writing our training plan and who's paying attention to us and looking out for our best interests, they're the ones that can send that quick text and say, not worth it. 
It's basically recovery miles anyway. Just take the day. You'll be fresher tomorrow. Let it go. Don't bother. Or you know what? Don't do the workout today. Just do some easy miles. It'll help your mentally. Like it just depends on what the situation is. Well, stress stress to the body, right? Like whether that's you're not sleeping or you're not taking care of yourself in some way, stress at work, stress at home, all of that impacts your running. We're humans. We're not robots. So if you don't listen to that, like, you know, it's going to put you in a hole of some kind, whether that's overtraining, fatigue, injury. Um, Sometimes you just need someone and and that's what coaching is, right? It's so much more than just here, go hit this workout. It's knowing the person, it's knowing the human. Yeah. Um, a great way to kind of dive into your own running history at this point, um, because, you know, people think progress is linear and, you know, like, please, it's like, come on, man. Like, I mean, endurance running, it, it can take six years, seven years, 10 cycles, 12 cycles for things to truly manifest themselves, where real strength is developed, real power is developed, not to mention the mental strength that we've gained because we've been doing those cycles over and over. We've added more hills in. We've done long runs with lots of pace work. We've run faster times at different distances. So now we're developing different systems in our body, aerobic systems. We're getting stronger. We're getting more aerobic power. And not to mention, each time we're competing and lining up in these big races and we start to perform, you're starting to believe in yourself more. So, you know, like this idea you know, that you're just going to get from here to there and it's going to go that way. It doesn't work that way. So like in your case, you know, kind of just take us through a little bit. Um, obviously I want to dig in and spend a good amount of time on your Olympic trials race because it is truly an amazing performance. I mean, you know, for anybody that was down in Atlanta and I was there and, you know, it was just such an amazing turnout of people that were there in person cheering the runners on out there on that course, which was a bruiser of a course. That course was a beast. The wind was a beast. So it was just the toughest, you know, of conditions. Um, but, you know, you know, just thinking back, you know, before, before we go there, you know, as you're making your way through, and you're continuing to improve, you know, what you talked about, like with your coach, someone out there has to know if Mary had this time and, you know, and she's not, is she ready to run another race because she wants to try to make the Olympic trials or not? If you're doing that on your own, you might pick a race that's sooner, you know, you might not feel enough confidence in yourself versus you're working with a coach who knows your ability. He knows what you're capable of and he can really kind of assess from afar, hey, is this going to be okay? Or is this too big of a risk? Is this going to lead to like maybe a long-term injury and maybe she's going to get burned out and she's not going to stay with it. So um, there's a lot in there, but just kind of take take us through a little bit of your progression um, from when you like really, you know, starting from, you know, when you kind of just jumped onto the scene. So my first ever one was in college and my coach said, she didn't know I was doing it. And she said, please don't do that again. Uh, train for it properly. Once you're post-college, uh, right now you're doing 5k, 10k, like didn't train for it properly. It was the Vermont city marathon. I did it in 2006 and this was pre GPS watches. So it's like, I used MapQuest, I think to like kind of figure out where I was going with my run. Um, and I ran 339. That was my first one. Yeah. Walked a lot. Um, considered drinking a beer, uh, didn't, 
uh, around mile 20, <laughs> but yeah, I didn't do another one until 2015. And that one I ran 303 and wasn't coached at this point. My goal going into that, that was Lehigh in 2015 was to qualify for Boston and do Boston the next year. And it's one of those last minute races. It's in Pennsylvania. Uh, I think it was Sunday and Boston registration was Monday. So I ran 303 there. And that was the first time anyone told me about the Olympic trials. I didn't know that was something that was available to non-professional runners. And this was before Instagram was, you know, as newsworthy as it is. Right. So it wasn't information that was available to us, I would say. And by us, I mean, like I was working as a lawyer. I went to law school um, after college and, you know, for my first few years after law school, I wasn't really, I wasn't running at all. I actually didn't run for six years. And so this was my return to running post-college. And I didn't know that. And I didn't know at the time that I was capable of 245 when I, like, I, I didn't have goals other than I wanted to qualify for Boston and race Boston. And I remember people told me in the running community in Maryland, um, this is something that you could do not in 2016, right? Cause the, the Olympic trials were like at that point, what, four months away. Yeah. But I said for 2020, you know, if 245 is the standard, like you can achieve that. And I thought to myself, I mean, I just ran 303 and that felt like an all out effort. Like I can't imagine cutting off 18, 18 minutes, 18 right? minutes. Yeah. yeah. I just, it, at that point, it seemed so far away. And then I sat on my couch and I watched the Olympic trials in 2016. And I remember I had just run a 122 half right after the, um, the marathon I had done in September. So I did this half in December and I, uh, averaged 618. And I said, you know, with proper training four years from now, holding that for double the distance, I think I can do that. Like I could see it. I had that vision. And so I remember sitting on the couch, texting with my friends. And I said, my training buddies at the time. Uh, and I said, one day I'm going to run 237. I'm going to do it. Um, I see that for myself. And at this point I'm a 303 marathoner and people may think that's crazy, right? Like you're going to cut that much time off. But I just said, you know, I know it's going to take a long time, but I'm going to do it. And so I then go to race Boston in 2016 I DNF there. I put a ton of pressure on myself. I was also sick going into the race. And this is just an example of like progress, not being linear. Right. Um, so I DNF in Boston. Then I ran New York year race. Uh, <laughs> so then I ran New York in the fall and I went out too fast. I was like in the sub elite start kind of got like this imposter syndrome, like Molly huddles, like warming up and like, I'm a three Oh three. She's like, maybe going to win the race. And I remember I went out too hot and I had like a 16 minute positive split or something crazy and still ran a great time. I, mean, I ran 308, but obviously I'm going backwards now. I'm not going forwards. And so then I said, I feel very burnt out with this sub three attempt. And I was getting so fixated with, man, I want to run 245 that I wasn't like, I didn't have a coach again, still. I wasn't seeing that I should like, set a goal and train for that specific time. I was kind of like all over the place. So I wasn't smooth locking in a pace during training like I needed to. So I would hit all these 
fast splits that showed capability, but I wasn't doing it properly. And so then I said, I need to just break three. Like, <laughs> let's just break three. Let's get that out of the way. Yes. So this is like my third attempt at breaking three. And I did it in 2017, April, 2017. I squeaked under, it was like 259.30. And I was like, I remember the last few miles because I was on pace for faster. Again, not pacing myself properly for these things, but I was on pace for like 255-ish. And then, you know, the last couple miles I'm watching, you know, when you're watching like time slow down and can't go faster. So I'm watching this happen. And I remember saying to myself, if you break free, you never have to do another marathon again. We just walk away, goal achieved, forget the Olympic trials. Like literally we can be done. This is torture. 2.59, 30 something. And of course, then like five minutes later, after I finished, I said, I can do that better. So <laughs> post-race amnesia is what I like to call it. You forget how much we were just suffering like 10 minutes ago. I end up running 256 from there in another marathon, still haven't hired a coach. I then took a little bit of time off. Um, I was getting into yoga more at the time and did a ton of hot yoga. And I've gotten back into yoga again, and it really helps balance me out. I, I think it's one of the best things runners can do. And so then in 2018, I ran 248 at California International Marathon. And I was like, game on OTQ is the goal is back because it had kind of been put on the shelf for a little while. Um, and my current coach, Nick Plastava had been supporting me like, you know, emotionally and like sending me workouts here and there. And, uh, I decided to officially work with him after that race. After CIM. Yes. And he very much played a part in that race. And I also had run a one seventeen half before that that build. And he had told me you're ready to qualify for trials. And mentally, I didn't think I was. And I mean, I also hadn't really done enough, like hot, like long runs to sustain that effort. And I wasn't feeling myself properly. Uh, those have all been things that have made a huge difference. Like there's so many factors, right. But, uh, yeah, when I ran 117 for a half, he was like, you are ready to qualify for trials. Uh, but I didn't, I ran 248, but I was thrilled with that because, you know, I had just PR'd from a 256 to a 248. And so then from there, we trained for grandmas in 2019. Well, let's stop there for a moment. Cause I want to, I want to hit on a couple of those points. So, um, so now you're, you've engaged him as your coach, but you know, you hadn't really, he was sending you workouts and he has belief in you and he's kind of guiding you to some degree, you know, when he gets to the line at, at CIM for your 248. So he sees you run the 117 and he's convinced you can do the trials at this point, but you're not. So, I mean, that's really the key port. at this stage of your journey, you didn't believe it yet. And you hadn't been working with him long enough yet to have that trust in the other person, the way a great coaching dynamic works, where when they tell you something, you're just like, well, Mary said I can do it. So I I guess I can do it. Like, I'm going to do it. She said I can do it. I'm going to do it. Well, you didn't have that yet. You know, you're really just getting going together. And although he has the experience and he knows what you're capable of, and certainly 117, 234, 244, you know, double at add 10, double at add eight, like any 
anybody who's a coach and knows running and metrics, it doesn't hold true to every single runner because some people just don't perform as well going from the half to the full, but some people perform better. So it just depends on the athlete. We're all different, right? Some of us are way more strength focused as runners and some of us are not. And some of us are better in the shorter distances. And like the half is really more or less a peak, but so you're really starting to show you know, that this can happen. It's starting to get exciting and it's starting to come together. And I'm glad that you've now got him on board or at least moving forward. Because look, at this point, the reason I wanted to stop you right there is every story can go in so many directions, right? There's this fork in the road. There's that fork in the road. Hey, you could have just said, oh, well, that's it. I ran 248 at CIM. Cool. I'm not going to do the Olympic trials. I'm going to do hot yoga. I'm going to do other stuff. (laughs) Like, I mean, there's no harm, no harm, no foul. Like, but- you had already seen this vision of yourself. It's like way further down the road of 236, which I just love. So like, if you see something and you believe in it, fuck the rest of the world, man. Let them catch up. You know, if it's up there and you think you can do something, don't ever tell yourself you can't do it, man. That's Goggins' mindset. I mean, don't ever let anybody take that away from you, man. I don't care how crazy it sounds. Like, you got to keep chasing that with everything you have. But you need the help of somebody to look after your training. So you guys are together at this point now. You're like on board. And what year is this at CIM where you have your 248? That was 2018. 2018. Okay, I wasn't there in 2018. And what year was your New York 308? Ooh, 2016. 2016. Okay, cuz I ran 308, but that was in 2018. So there's a lot of different years where we were at some of the same races. So Mm -hmm. just trying to get that together. Okay. So now CIM 248, huge step down, 117 half. So you've made big moves in the half and the marathon is going to come. And what I try to tell everybody is the marathon takes longer, man. It just, for a million reasons, for a multitude of reasons, but for one thing, when we have a shitty weather day and a half, it's not going to impact our performance that much unless it's like 97 degrees or a 30 mile an hour wind in our face, like Boston that we had in 2018. Like, unless you have one of those extreme days, it's not going to affect you as much in a half. Sure. It might cost you a minute or a minute and a half off your time, maybe even two minutes if it's really extreme, but that isn't a big deal in the marathon. It is a quantum difference, man. It's like, get out some physics slide rules. And it's just like, yeah, goodbye. Your race is gone. Like, give it up. Um, so anyway, take it from there. So exciting. What did you, I mean, the 248, like, what was the race like itself? I mean, what do you remember about it? I mean, first off, CIM is a world-class event. Love the event. Love the course. Love everything about it. People are just rocking Olympic trial standards there. I just love the way that race is handled. I love how the men's and the women's finish line. I just, there's just a lot of really cool things they do. They're great at marketing. Um, and they've got a lot of pacer groups for really fast men and women trying to make trial standards and stuff like that. So what was, what was your experience like? Was that your first CIM? It was. And I, it's one of my favorite races ever. It's the only one to date that I've done twice. And both time, like I went there in 2018, I wanted to run fast and I, and I did, I wanted to break 250 was my goal. I ran 248 and I went there back there in 2019 and my goal was to qualify for trials. And I did. And I just think the world of the race, historically good weather, great course, great crowd support, whatever pace you're running, you're going to have people to run with. And I feel like everyone I've ever connected with on Instagram is always there. So it's such a social weekend too. 
And actually this year I was there uh, for work, not running. And I had, I had a great time, just very social weekend. And I love it. The running community shows up in a huge way and it's such a supportive environment. I, I want to go every year, whether I'm racing or not. (laughs) Yeah. That's just so well said. It's just, there's just such a great energy and vibe about CIM. There just is. And shakeout runs and people getting together and hanging out and, and meetups and, and just, there's just a good positive energy vibe. Um, and post-race, it's one of the greatest races to hang around at post-race and just kind of hang around the finish area. People are all, you know, juiced up and buzzing and, um, everybody gets together and, you know, it's just a cool place, cool place to go. The weather's great. That's never a variable. A lot of these races, the weather is just so hit or miss. You just don't know what you're going to get. Um, the course is great. And, you know, like you said, you've got a, a multitude of people running super fast times and pace groups from the men's guys trying to run, you know, sub 220, you know, 218 to, you know, obviously tons of people are always shooting for sub three. That's always like a big, big mark that people are going for, but, you know, down to 245 for the women and everywhere in between. Um, and then all the way back to like four hours, because that may be a qualifier for somebody depending on their sex and their age. So like, I mean, it just, it's just such a terrific event, but I'm glad that we're not going to get into your really fast CIM, the faster one than your 248, because that's the cooler part of the story. Everybody just wants this magical checkbox of fast, faster, faster. No, it doesn't work that way, man. So you get your 248, and then you have a couple of other races where things are, you know, a little bit up and down, because guess what, man? That's fucking real life, okay? There's no magic, man. It just doesn't go according to some slide rule, and we're just going to get ourselves to that magical number we want. So talk a little bit about where, where it progressed from there, and and how it was, you know, working with your coach and stuff like that. I love my story because it's the exact example of progress is not linear and you have to love the journey that you are on. And I absolutely loved every step of the journey. And I truly believe that the bad races really keep us humble and make us appreciate the days that do go our way. If every time we lined up, we knew we were going to crush our goal, where would the fun be in that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And where does our gratitude come from? Man, when we fall on our ass, when we fall on our face and our, our self-confidence is all of a sudden in real doubt and we don't, we're wondering if we can do some of these things and we have some experiences that don't go our way, then all of a sudden it's like, man. And then when you do it again, it's like, my God, my soul is recharged. My spirit is renewed. So keep, keep going on that because man, I, I love where you're going with this. So I chose grandma's for my next attempt with my coach. Uh, I was going to go to Boston in 2019 and I decided to go to grandma's instead and wasn't my day. Uh, I was ready for the goal. Um, and my coach will tell you I had been ready. Right. Uh, but I, uh, just blew up, honestly, like, you know, it, there were a number of things that got to me just wasn't my day and that's okay. It happens. So I remember mile 16 and it was clear, like pretty early on, like I wasn't feeling right from like, I remember the 10 K I was like, I got 20 miles. And when you're like at the 10 K and you're thinking that like, you're having a long day. So wait, Mary, one sec. So the pace just felt a little harder than you would want it to. Cause I was, I like to be really specific about this stuff because this is where we learn, man. So like, you know, when you're saying you're not having your day, like you just were feeling more, more effort than it should have been for you to be at that pace or as early as 10 K in the race. 
Yeah. And when I looked back at my heart rate data, it was like, I was working too hard for the pace that had come to me during training. And at this point, like I was aiming for like 243, um, what or 44. Like I, I, I think we were training me for 243 at the time. So that's where I had settled in during training. And that's where I was, you know, clicking off and it just wasn't feeling right. Like everything felt harder than it should. And mile 16, it was clear, like I was already slowing down. And I remember standing on the side, I I slowed and I stopped for a minute and I said, should I DNF like, or should I like keep going? And I kind of played through these scenarios in my head of, is there another race I could jump into? No, like there's nothing really until September, October, and this is June. And I said, you know, I've DNF'd before. I don't want to keep DNFing like And I have done several between, right? You know, I've had a good race between, but you never want being a mental runner. And I'm, I'm very much a mental runner. Like I have to work on that confidence and I've grown with that over years, but you know, my coach will tell you that that's what interfered with my progress for a long time was not believing that I was a good marathoner, not trusting myself and having that, that trust in my training on race day. So I said, you know, I don't want DNF to, to be an option for me. Like I need to just finish it. And then it's going to be a long day. And then when it gets hard in the next race and I'm considering DNF, like, cause it's not an injury, like that's a different reason to DNF. This was, it's hard. I feel like crap. I don't want to keep doing this. This is so far off what I trained for. I said, you need to just finish this thing. And like, you know, I met a bunch of women out there who were trying to break three hours in the marathon. And that became my goal. And I was like, I'm going to help these women break three hours. And so I was like rallying them and I came through at 258 and it was a very rewarding day. And I turned it around to be a positive, but yes, I was disappointed that I ran and 258 is a great time. Like rewind what three years before. And like, that was the goal that I was training for, but you know, it's 10 minutes off my PR it's, you know, significantly off where I trained to be. So that was a disappointing result for me personally. And my coach and I talked about it after. And we said, I said, I'm going to try again. (laughs) It's not over. Uh, So we said, let's see how I recover and pick the next race. And we were all in this, like, because now you can use chip time. Back then you had to use gun time all of us were trying to get into these elite starts so we could get like as close to the start line as possible. Exactly. So it was really hard to get into some of them because everyone was trying to get in and race, you know, to qualify at the last minute. And I got into twin cities as my next attempt. And that course I loved, but the end's a little challenging because you gain all the elevation the last 10 K and it's not too much. I think it's like three or 400 feet of elevation, but you know, that's when you're feeling the worst. And I said, I'll train for the train. I'm ready for it. And so that was the race I chose went out to once I knew I recovered. Okay. And I was back to training and my, my body could sustain it. I went out to Minneapolis and there was a very small group of us going for it. And I ran And I loved this journey because I connected with so many women and we can get into that later. But um, I ran the whole race with one woman who I've become close with, Liz Cammie. And 
we were together until I want to say mile 25. And I just fell apart at mile 25. And she kept going and qualified. And I didn't know until I, after I crossed the finish line, because I was a little delirious at the end, I went up to someone on the side and I said, did I squeeze under 245? And they said, they looked up my bib number and they said, you ran 245.13. Oh my God. And I said, I did drop an F-bomb at the finish. I would have dropped more than one. <laughs> but at the same time, I couldn't be upset. I had, look, I just PR'd by over three minutes. I'd never moved my body that fast before. And, you know, I didn't, I really truly didn't shed a single tear. I said to my coach, if that's as close as I get, if 13 seconds keeps me out of the Olympic trials, this journey was worth it because, you know, that you're there. Like, you know, that's a hairpin turn. That, you know, that's a tangent. It's you a didn't tangent. Take yeah. So I said, you know, at this point, like, I am satisfied. Like, I, you know, if my, if I can recover and go again before the window closes in January, and this is October, I said, I'll try again. But if my body says no, like I'm not going to get injured trying to do this. Uh, it was worth it. I had fun. Like this was so fun. I was able to recover, bounce back, do CIM in 2019. And I ran 242. And that was a great moment. That was that finish line. That's so epic where we were all cheering in the women, you know, as they, as they came through squeezing under 245 and from, and then, you know, obviously I raced the Olympic trials after, but I never wanted to do that many marathons back to back. I would never sign up for that many, like planning that. Right. I ended up doing five and 14 months and I would never coach someone like to like sign up for that many and pursue that many. That's just, we literally took it one at a time. And if at any point fatigue injury had set in, I would have shut it down. I tr like, I truly would have. Um, and it's really just a testament to my coach helping me, um, you know, diet, nutrition, just doing everything right. And, you know, I actually qualified off of about like 60 peaking at 70 mile weeks because I, I couldn't handle the kind of volume that other runners were doing. So I really had to just not look at what anyone else was doing, solely focus on myself and trust that my training was right for me. Because I, I like, you know, most women were running 80, 90, 100 mile weeks for qualifying and then racing trials. But like, it's clear, clearly quantity isn't always the answer. Like quality is always going to trump quantity. And that's what I say to people all the time. Like, just cause someone's doing high mileage doesn't mean it's right for you at this point in your training, in your running journey. So well said. Um, so I want to go back. Um, and look, high mileage works for a certain percentage of runners. It does not work for a big percentage of runners. Okay. It can lead to stress fractures and burnout and all sorts of other things. I mean, um, I, I just had, um, you know, Ben Flanagan on, he just ran a one-on-one half in Houston he, his peak mileage is 80 miles a week. He runs six days a week. He takes a seventh day off because he got stress fractures in the University of Michigan running. I mean, he's run a sub four minute mile. He's run Falmouth and won Falmouth twice. I mean, the guy's an amazingly talented runner, but he's a small guy. There's not a lot to him. And when he tries to put a bigger load on himself, 
he gets injured and he gets broken. And look, that is the single biggest lesson that you have to learn either as the athlete or as the coach coaching the athlete or working together with your coach, you know, in your own connection that you guys have back and forth, because look, you that's what we do. We figure out, well, okay, 258, 248, 242. Okay, well, now we're going to do this. We're going to add this to the secret sauce. We're going to add that. Well, that's natural. We're going to want to add a few little tweaks. The thing about it is, if it worked to get you from 248 to 242, like how much do you really need to change? So these are the questions that you have to answer as a coach to your athletes and your coach has to answer to you. Um, but I wanted to go back, um, grandmas, what a cool experience. So you have all those thoughts out there. Yes, those are real people, man. That's exactly what is going through your head when you're trained and you're fit and you're ready to run a race, but you're just not having your day, okay? It's just, that can happen. Whether you don't get your nutrition right, you didn't come into it feeling as good as you should have. Maybe you needed to taper more. Maybe you didn't eat the right meals a couple of days leading up. We'll never know how... What's going to make us feel that magic sauce, that magic spring that we have on certain days versus the other ones? We're just not going to know. Sometimes we don't sleep for two days before a race and we run the best races of our life because we're so wired and we're so ready. And other times we come in off of these perfect builds and we think we're going to kill it and we just bomb a race. So, you know, you chose to stay in there and I love that you were looking at it like long-term, even though you were in that moment, because yes, each time we punch out when we're not really hurt, we're giving ourselves, you know, permission to do it again some other time. And whether we know it or not, our brain is going to remember that conscious choice we made to say, ah, you know what? I don't really feel that great on this run. Well, guess what? Sometimes when you don't feel great on a long run and you're trying to get miles in and pace miles in and tempo miles in... Sometimes when we push through two or three of those shitty miles, all of a sudden we feel stronger at the end and we finish a workout stronger. And that's why a cycle is more important than the race day. Because when we overcome those feelings of fatigue or feeling like shit or just having a rough day, but we push through it in a workout, it becomes harder for us to quit on a race that we shouldn't quit. Okay. And could you have quit? Of course. Who cares if you quit? Okay. You care. Your coach cares. The hell cares about what anybody else thinks, okay? There's no there's no guarantee that if you had quit that race versus staying in the race and helping those ladies to run the sub three, that you wouldn't still have ended up in the same place. We're never gonna know that. But I love the fact that you thought through all of it and you made that decision and you helped some other people because that's gonna give you a feeling of goodwill. You helped other runners, it's a community thing. And you know what? You still finished, okay? And there was a time where 258 would have made you do an Irish jig dance and you would have been like, I ran 258, I'm a badass. So that was cool. And then Twin Cities, you know, that's rough, man. You know, you run the whole way with the girl and then she actually makes it and you miss by 13 seconds. But this is where I see, you know, through the Zoom screen here, where I see the development is happening up here, okay? So you're going through these experiences you're getting stronger with each one of them. You're building more resilience. You're getting stronger because a lot of people would just be like, ah, you know what? I don't need this fucking goal. Who cares? I came in in 13 seconds. You kind of did that to some degree, which is fabulous, by the way, because the truth is no one could tell you you didn't make it. What about Peter Bromka? He missed by one second in CIM. The guy like fell across the line and missed by one second. You make it or you don't. Look at Tommy Rives, man. I got, there's my Rives posters up there. 
in the background, I ran 60 miles for Tommy Ribs on my 60th birthday last year and raised uh, $6,000 for his family because, you know, I just felt so moved by everything he was going through and his wife, Steph, you know, writing these beautiful, just heartbreaking, you know, chilling passages about what he was going through and seeing all these tubes in him and this incredibly, you know, Greek God-like physical specimen of a guy just destroyed, you know, decimated, losing, you know, being down to 98 pound body weight. So, but I think in your journey, you know, you're having some ups and downs, which I think is great because that's freaking real life, man. It doesn't work the other way. You don't just all of a sudden become an Olympian and it all goes perfect every race. And it, by the way, if it did, and then when the Olympics come and you have some shitty things come up at you, what's going to happen then? You're not prepared for to be resilient. You're not prepared to really battle when things aren't going your way. So you're learning some really important lessons in these races. And, you know, you, you're getting closer and closer. And instead of being, you know, bummed out about uh, Twin Cities, you know, being 13 seconds away, you know, you guys actually talk it through and say, you know, what about CIM? So what's the time difference between when you ran Twin Cities and ran CIM? Uh, I want to say it was was it eight weeks? Right, so Twin Cities was like October. It's early. It's it's early October, right? First or second week of October. And then CIM is the first weekend of December. So I want to say it was eight weeks. I didn't race closer than eight weeks. I know that. I think it was eight. And then CIM to the Olympic trials was 12. And I was like, ooh, we got plenty of time now after that. So yeah, I think it was eight. Amazing. So, and, and I mean, just amazing. I mean, cause basically you're 13 seconds. Um, obviously the courses are different. Um, I haven't run twin cities. I've run CIM a couple of times. So I know what CIM is like. Um, and I know lots of friends have run fast times at, at twin cities. Um, you know, again, it could be a weathered thing. You know, sometimes, you know, they've had some shaky weather, but usually it's fall and usually it's pretty good. Um, yeah. but to, they had crazy weather the day before it was like pouring rain, super windy, black flag conditions. I think they canceled like the 5k and the 10k the day before the next day. It was beautiful. It was like, there was like a 15 mile an hour wind, but it, it did not impact me. Like, you know, that the way that race runs is it's basically like a giant loop. So like at some point I had a headwind, I had a crosswind, I had a tailwind. So like that did not impact my race. I, I don't believe that at all. Um, it was just, I was consistent until the last mile I, I fell off. Um, and I, I love that race. I would absolutely go back and do it again. I think it's a beautiful course and I'd love to do the 10 miler sometime too. Yeah. That's a, that's a great race. Now, let me ask you nutrition wise, you know, your training, your mileage, you're getting stronger. You and your coach are like kind of mapping this stuff out. Are you dialed in on your nutrition? Because, you know, to lose it in the last mile, my God, there's like no shame in that, man. You could lose it in the last 10K, for Christ's sakes, or the last 5K. The last one mile, I mean, that is like coming as close as you can humanly come and missing by 13 seconds. It's not like you gave back two minutes or three minutes or something. You missed by 13 seconds, which is crazy. Like, that's unbelievable, you know, how close. Like, what's your nutrition like at this point in these races? Do you have a good plan? Have you figured it out? Or are you still like working through that? at this point? No, I had, I started using Martin, um, and I had used Martin gels, uh, for grandmas and I got bottles for twin cities. And that was the first time I ever raced with bottles and it makes such a difference. Like it really does. And 
So I was much more dialed for that. And then I've become even more dialed since, but I started training with that and it's made such a huge difference for my training and racing. And the other thing was my coach was like, stop trying to run 244.59. Like, you know, we, he was training me because I was ready for a faster goal. And he was like, you need to stop seeing the barrier and you need to see where your current fitness is like run to your current fitness. And I did that at, at CIM and he'll tell you that I, I actually should have run faster, but, um, you know, I, I actually allowed myself to go out like ahead of the pace group because I felt confident that 242, like low 240 was range was where I was ready for and not to like, try to squeak under and have, and fall off the last mile. Like I did at twin cities, like run to your current fitness because that's where you're going to be most efficient. So, but that was a big move for you then, because there's a lot of comfort in being with a pack, right? So you have pace groups and you've got all these strong women that are going to try to run 245. And, but I'm saying that's a big move for you to, to listen to him at that point and believe in yourself to say, no, I'm, I'm not, staying with this group. I'm, go I'm going to go out. I'm capable of doing this. I'm going to go out faster because you would miss by 13 seconds. So you can still be a little scarred from that, or you can be like, nope, I believe him. So I think they're starting to have more belief together, right? So you've now done a bunch of races, you're working together, or am I like thinking that's more than it's worth? Like, I mean that his belief in you and all of that. No, that's absolutely true to you know, trust your training. And in many ways, like running that 245, 13 was very liberating because like I was able to, in many ways, let go of the goal because I was like, you know, I, I had become very result focused. And when you become so focused on these barriers, like they will drive you crazy if you let them. Right. And I said, that might be it. Like that might be as close as I get, like this goal might not happen for me. And that stings of course. Uh, and I have friends who ran similar times, whether it's, you know, missing by a couple seconds or running high two forties, like they tried, they went for it. And my heart breaks for them that they didn't make it because that could have just as easily been me. I had that experience where it didn't happen. And there was never a guarantee that I could get my body back and do CIM or Houston and, and you know, make it happen. So I wanted everyone who went for it, who committed to the training, who dreamed this dream to be on the start line with me. And like my heart broke for them because I knew what that felt like, but I did really feel so much more relaxed going into CIM because like I was there and I knew that. And I said, you know, to my coach, this has been fun and so much. And I don't know how many people have shared this, but like in our pursuit, mutual women, on social media, especially, and, and teammates, of course, training buddies, we all bonded so much over this pursuit. Like whether we were doing the same race or a different race, like we were all like DMing each other, texting each other, showing up to some of the same races, trying to do, trying to run together. Or if we weren't running together, we were still supporting each other, waiting at the finish for each other to like cheer each other in, be a shoulder to cry on. Like it was such a wonderful experience to share this with other women because it wasn't a situation of, oh, we're only taking the first 100 or the fastest 100. It was like, anyone who makes this barrier is going to the Olympic trials. So like, we all strategized together. Like, what race are you doing next? Like, have you heard from the elite coordinator? I mean, it was, it was so fun. Like, and I got to know so many people, so many wonderful people entered my life who I never would have met 
if not for this journey. So when I lined up at CIM with like what felt like everyone I knew, right, who hadn't already qualified, um, I just was like, listen, it's either going to happen or it's not at this point. So like, what am I stressing over? Like, you know, I've blown up and if you want to call it a failure, publicly failed, but there is no failure. It's all lessons. I've missed by 13 seconds. Like, you know, I've experienced everything you can at this point. So it's either going to happen or it's not. So I just relaxed, trusted my training more and it happened. So and it could have just as easily not happened. I guess, you know, if you want to look back in that way, because I've had good races, I've had bad races. That's everyone. Yeah. I think in your case, you're not only getting significantly fitter and getting stronger and developing from the cycle after cycle after cycle and running races close together, which I don't care what anybody else says. That's, that's old school thinking. I mean, if we haven't learned, look what Shalane did. I mean, I ran all six marathons at 58 years old. I ran all six majors in the same year, three and 35 days. I averaged 313 per marathon at 58 years old. I mean, they were all within one minute of each other, Mary. So like everybody's preconceived notions of you can't run that many races close together. You can't, you don't, that, that may be the case for certain groups of people, maybe even a large group, but it's not the case for everyone. Look at what Shalane just did. So look at all these races you ran in seriously close together time frames, right? Not all perfect, okay? Some better than others. And you were building, okay? But more importantly than physically building and getting stronger, this is to me where the real development is going on. You're starting to really truly believe in yourself you know your coach believes in you and you just basically gave yourself permission to do this thing. You basically said, I've already done this. I missed by 13 seconds and if I don't do it, I don't care. I already did it. You basically told yourself as much after Twin Cities instead of looking at it as like some negative thing like, oh my God, if I didn't take a drink at that last table or if I cut a tangent better, I would have I would already made it. Like, no, you just went there and you basically showed up you know, you collaborate with all these other women. There's this collective feel good sharing going on of how to get, you know, the sub elite starts and all these other things. And you're learning every step of the way. But in my mind, it was really the mental part of the journey that had to kind of shore itself up to catch up with where you were physically, because to not run with that group, it was ballsy. I mean, even if your coach told you to do it, it would have been way easier to just go in with that pack and be in with the group and just kind of be there with that big giant collective energy and you didn't do that. So to me, that shows growth. I mean, what do you think about that? Absolutely. And I've said, you know, I've had to work on my mental strength as a runner all the time. And I do best when I race people, not a clock, like truly. And that's why trials was the way it was in part is because it didn't matter. Like we are all starting over at this race. Like there's not a time standard I'm chasing at that point. So I, I will say this though, as far as like doing races so close, if you look, I didn't PR that much by each of them. Right. Like it was 245, 242, 241. And obviously Olympic trials is a very different course. Like it's almost the opposite of CIM, right? Like CIM is a very favorable course. Um, Olympic trials is a very difficult course. Um, but I didn't PR that much each one. I still do believe you get the most out of yourself when you commit to a longer training block and space them out. Doing them eight weeks apart, I don't think for me or most people is going to result in 
big chunks of time coming off your PR. Shalane is an exception. She's an outlier in that she is very high level professional runner. I don't think that's something that's right for most people. I really don't. I think it risks so much injury and most people I don't think can recover and commit to that kind of level of training and have all the resources that she had. Like she had a whole team of PTs, nutritionists, you name it, like to support that. So I do see that as being very different than, than most of us. Oh, hundred percent. Um, I'm just really being more specific about you and that how many races that you ran, because it isn't about everyone else. Or, you know, I'm just using even myself as an example of somebody who's 58, like to be able to run a minute apart in three marathons in 35 days that are in Berlin, Chicago, and New York, three incredibly different courses, like virtually no rest. You're flying home. You finish a race, you're flying home a day or two later, you know, work is going on. You have life, you have things to do. And, you know, you're doing a couple of runs in between and boom, you're on the starting line in Chicago and the weather's different. It's warmer, it's hot, or it's raining in Berlin. And then you come back to New York and it's really hilly course and it's really tough. And so, you know, your body and our bodies recover very differently. And yeah, Shalane, believe me, Inside Tracker, you know, I'm very involved with them. Um, I do promotions with them for their, um, for their really important stuff that they're helping us learn about our bodies. And you know, the key biomarkers that tell us everything. And, and Shalane was literally making big decisions on what she was doing based on all the information. And yeah, she did. She had PTs and massage therapists and people cooking and doing all this other stuff. So um, adventure of a lifetime, experience of a lifetime, you know, but more important- Very fun to follow along as well. Yeah, I mean, look, it's also inspirational. It's also about, you know, like, why do we do the things that we do? Um, you know, why do we, you know, why do we want to, make an Olympic trial standard? Why do we want to qualify for Boston? Why do we want to run some round number like three hours? Like we'll never really be able to maybe adequately quantify or put it into words that really truly explain it. But that is those things and understanding our why around those things are how we get the best results and performance out of ourselves. But the physical part of the training is a big piece of it, but it's way more about mindset. And at this point, you know, you're evolving, you're getting better, you're going through ups and downs in your experiences, which is the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be, hey man, I'm just gonna run a marathon and keep getting faster every time, especially if some of them are eight weeks apart. Um, but to run, you know, to take it down to 242 at CIM, you know, to give yourself permission to to just like put it out there, man, and just go out there and do it. Um, is amazing. Now, at what point in the CIM race, you know, cause you didn't run with the pace group, you know, you went out ahead, like at what point in that race, like, how was it, how was the race like playing out to you, you know, that day on the course, you know, cause obviously you were struggling at 10 K, you know, at grandma's, like, how was it feeling, you know, on that race day before we get to your trials experience? I have a lot of confidence in that race. Just, I knew the course from having done it before. and. I knew from having done all these marathons, like how I should feel at various points. And I just allowed myself to really not think too much and just to let my body do its thing. By this point, I've run so many miles at my marathon pace between just missing at Twin Cities and the workouts I did. My body knew that pace. It, it was settling in there. And I just allowed the rolling nature of CIM to dictate, you know, I was within a couple seconds each mile and I just would look, not react, stay calm. And 
I would say when I got to mile 20 and I felt like I was reeling people in and I felt like I was aware of positioning and people were telling me my place and I could see people ahead and I wasn't trying to catch them because I still was very like trials was different. I was going after people this race. I was like, don't get greedy, hold, just keep holding. And, but I remember in that race, I had said to myself, you could race people right now. You could reel people in. And that's when I tried not to get excited because I said, this is clearly your day. This is happening. So just get to the finish line. Like, don't try to all of a sudden, you know, race the last 10 K and like blow yourself up. Like I still felt a little bit confined by the goal, like trapped by it. Uh, and I just was like, you really do want to be on the start line in Atlanta. So like, let's just get there. And so I did. And I ran even splits like the whole time. I think my last mile was maybe like 10 seconds off, like slower. Um, but I also like kind of did like a hands in the air as I came through and just was like so excited to see the clock and to know I made it. So just a very different mindset going into it, but I still did feel a little bit trapped by the goal once I knew it was happening. It makes sense. It really does. Um, and it is, there's a reason why we call these goals barriers, right? Because, you know, whether it's physical, like a roadblock on a highway or median, like they're there, you know, these numbers can like become ingrained in us, you know, sub three, sub two thirty, whatever the hell the round number is like, they become almost immovable at some point until, we finally break through. And that's why we say we break through because it does feel like we broke through a wall, whether it's a mental wall, whether it's, you know, a physical wall, whatever it is, it's, it is there. And, you know, even with 10 K to go, even when you're still feeling great, you still, you know, you still have some anxiety there and rightfully so. I mean, you missed by 13 seconds. I mean, look, anything can happen in the marathon, man. You could be three minutes ahead of pace with two miles to go and literally like blow out a calf muscle or God knows what else. I mean, anything can happen. So until you truly like get across, you know, you're not there. Um, but that experience for you to have it there at CIM, again, I, we talked maybe before we came on about how they have the men's and the women's separate finish area, which is one of my favorite things ever. I just think it's so cool. Um, because the women that day, so many of them got under the standard and made it to go to Atlanta at CIM that day. And I remember just seeing pictures of all the women hugging and crying and being, you know, together. And it was just beautiful, solidarity. And it existed on the men's side too. There just weren't nearly as many men who qualified. There were just a much, much larger group of women who came through that day at CIM. And I don't know what the numbers, total number were, total number of women who actually qualified. Maybe you do, but it was a big ass group, man. It was huge. I don't know the number offhand. But it was a party, right? I mean, you got to come across. I mean, and they also have great cameras. They they have the cameras above the finish areas that are shooting. And then, of course, they got the photographers all over. So you got these amazing shots um, on video and still frame of women coming across doing the hugs. And uh, it's just it's a it's a feel good experience, you know, in every possible way. So that is December, like first week of December, right? Correct. And then obviously it's the last week of February, the trials, if I'm getting my timeline right. 
It was February 29th. February 29th. Yes, because I was supposed to be running Tokyo March 6th, and the race canceled the day before I flew. And then I decided to make lemon, you know, make uh, lemonade from lemons and go down to the trials, <laughs> which is which was the coolest thing ever. So, um, you know, to to get into Atlanta, um, what goes, you know, like you make it, you know, you make it at CIM, you know, what's the feeling like crossing the line and like, you know, all that work leading up to it? Like, what are you feeling like when you actually pull it together and you get across the line and make it happen? Just so grateful because no goal is ever guaranteed. You can put in all the work you want. You know, you like we've talked about this entire time, progress isn't linear. Yeah. Just because you put in the work doesn't mean that you're going to get the time you want on a clock. So I was very grateful that I, that I made it. And I didn't worry about it's 12 weeks away, like been there, done that. I get an extra month this time. So I was just so excited. And to think back on 2016, Mary, like sitting on her couch, 303 marathoner, and now I'm a 242. I just hope four people years. hear this. Four, yeah. Four I, years. Well, and like if I had had a coach and I had done some things differently, like I would have made more progress. Like, it, but my point is, I hope people hear this wherever they're sitting now and it helps them see that a lot can happen over a several year period. So wherever you are right now and wherever you want to go, just believe in yourself and get to work because who knows where you're going to be a year, two years, three years, four years from now. When I first started back, like I shared, I wanted to qualify for Boston. Then I found out OTQ was a thing and then I pursued it, but it was a multi-year thing and it was hard. It wasn't easy. There's never been a goal that I've set that I just like achieved right away, but that's what's made me the human I am for the experiences that I've had. And I wouldn't trade any of them for anything. It's so well said. Um, and you had this huge group that you could, you had all bonded with all these other women who were training that had this mutual goal. Um, and, and whether they did it at CIM or elsewhere, everybody's goal was to get to Atlanta. So you're all sharing tips. You're all following each other. You're sharing your experiences. Did you get to, um, celebrate and party with any of the other ladies who made it that day? Or was it just everybody kind of, you know, took some photos and just kind of zipped out of there. Cause that's, that's the way things tend to be. A lot of times people have to get home and get on flights and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, post race, I'm saying, you know, my celebration is like the largest basket of fries I can find like salty fries. I've never <laughs> been able to drink a beer or a glass of wine or champagne or anything after a race. I just, I'm dehydrated. Like I don't have like GI issues. I just like, it does not appeal. Like I just want to eat salty potatoes and like put my feet up and like, that's what I did. But there was, you know, my coach was there. There were some other friends and we had, we opened a bottle of wine and I took a sip and I was like, I can't, I'm sorry. Like, I always want to be able to do that. Like, give me a day or two and I'll be able to, but it's, yeah, I can't, <laughs> I can't party after in that, in that way. Yeah. Maybe it's, I'm just like, you know, I'm going to be 35. I just can't hang anymore. I don't know, but I just can't do it. <laughs> it's all good, man. Whatever, whatever gets you excited post-race, man, whether it's uh salty fries or burgers or pizza, beers, no beers, whatever, it's all good. Important thing is, you know, you accomplished it and you shared it 
with others, which makes it more meaningful, right? Because when we do these things and we're off on our own little silo, they don't have the same impact. So if we have a coach, we have a circle of people. If we're connecting on Instagram or Strava, wherever the hell we're connecting, if we're sharing that human experience of the journey, it's more powerful. And as you just pleaded with our audience so beautifully, um, yes, man, don't doubt yourself. Believe in yourself. Take a, take a chance on yourself instead of someone else and put a big-ass goal out there. Put one out there that scares the hell out of you. Put it on your refrigerator. Put it on your bathroom wall. Put it on your bedroom you know, nightstand where you get up. And, and take a big swing at something in life. It doesn't even have to be running related, man. It can be something really hard in your business career, or in your life, or you want to be able to speak in a room full of people and you're not comfortable doing public speaking. I don't care what it is, man. Learn another language, man. We're living in, we're living in COVID. Uh, you know, it's like every day is the same as the day before. You know, if there's ever been a time to reinvent yourself or, you know, take on new challenges, it's now, man. Like the world is, uh, is changing in, in front of our eyes. So um, you made it happen. It's super exciting. So take us from there, you know, to Atlanta, um, you know, leading up to the trials. You got 12 weeks to February. Take us through, you know, recovery, you know, what you did, what your plan was, you know, in terms of training. Did you do anything different? And then obviously, uh, you know, we got to talk about your race because it was really, uh, it was really remarkable, you know, how you performed, you know, in terms of your seating and positioning, because you said that so beautifully too, like times go out the window in a race like that. And I think about it is if we all had our watches turned over and we weren't paying as careful attention to what was that last mile, we might run better. We might run faster than we actually think we can because we're so worried about what is that next split going to tell us? Well, you know, maybe the line of sight of the GPS was off on that last mile. Maybe the mile wasn't marked right. Maybe it's marked a little long or a little short. Maybe you had a shitty tangent. But the point is like when we focus on your position and how far up you can finish in a race and just being ahead of the next person, catching the next person, sometimes there's like real gold in there. So um, take us up, th- you know, from CIM to Atlanta and, and then we'll talk about your race. So recovered. I took a full week off after each of these, didn't run at all, didn't exercise at all, just total rest. And then got back into it, just building progressively. And I said to my coach, I'm built for Atlanta. Like I've always been a strong cross country runner, hill runner. I just get me there. Like if I can get there, I knew I could have a good day. And I prepared for that terrain. I mapped out a section near where I lived with 1400 feet of elevation for a 24 mile run, which Atlanta is just shy of 1400 for 26.2. And that's a lot for a road marathon. Like I think Boston's like 800. I think New York is around the same. And CIM I think is 300 feet of gain and you lose slightly more than you gain. Um, but you are, it is a rolling course at CIM. So trials was a very different course. And I prepared for that. I did all of my workouts, marathon pace down to 10 K pace, like effort, right. On the hilliest routes I could find, because I said, I need to know what my marathon pace feels like on tough terrain. And I saw other people doing flat training. And I was like, you know, that's not going to help you run your best. When I think 
I used to know all, like I studied the, the map, uh, the, the, what would it be? The elevation chart? Course for profile. It? Yeah. The elevation Course profile. profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it told you like each mile, how much elevation gain and loss there was. And there were so many miles where it was like 60 and 80 feet of gain. Like most miles were 60 to 80 feet of gain also loss. So like very punchy course. And that's what I found for my training. Like I did that work. My coach told me find hilly roots. Like that was on me to actually do that. And the slowest marathon pace mile I split was 610 during training. And I knew when most of them were sub six and that was a hundred feet of gain. And I ran 610 was my slowest mile split for marathon pace during training. I was like, I'm ready for a big goal. Like I physically felt it. My training was going great. Um, and something that I haven't shared in a public way is what I was going through in my personal life through all of this. And it it actually started in September, 2019. Uh, I'm divorced. My ex-husband and I, our our marriage started to fall apart in September of 2019. And uh, I was living through quite a bit of extreme emotional stress uh, because of it. And um, it impacted a lot from September through when he asked me to leave or really told me to leave, uh, the first of February, it was February 5th, I remember. And so in trying to qualify for trials, I was dealing with a lot of sleepless nights unbelievable amount of stress. My coach helped me move workouts around, was there to support me emotionally. He's one of the few people who knew what I was going through. And January was very rough month in particular for me. And then February, I I didn't think he, like, I never, this was the, someone I shared a life for 11 years with six married 11 together and 10 were great. Um, he was absolutely my person. Uh, our last year, it was very hard. Um, and stress is stress. Something that I always say, whether that's work relationship, physical stress, like I was asked to leave. And so I did, I, packed up my car. It was a Nissan Pathfinder at the time with the things that I cared about the most. Um, my dog, (laughs) Max and mostly clothes. And from February 5th until I ended up moving to Arizona. Um, I was living in San Diego at the time from February 5th until I finally moved to Arizona for a new job at the beginning of April. Uh, I moved eight times. And from February 5th on, like that's three weeks before the Olympic trials, I had everything in my car. Um, I stayed with friends, like couch, guest room, air mattress. I finally got an Airbnb because I said, I need to get some sleep. Like I have a very important race coming up, but that's how I lived leading up to the most important race of my running life to date. And 
you know, I haven't, I haven't shared that because I didn't need to. Um, but it is so important to tell because it makes my performance there even more special because when he separated from me, I went for a run. Cause like, that's how we process things, right? Like I went for a run and my calf tightened up and I, I don't have a lot of things act up on me. Like I'm very, like, if you feel something, take a day off my calf tightened up and I ended up not running for five days. And I actually missed my peak long run workout three weeks out. I usually do my peak long run workout three weeks out and I missed it. I didn't run for, it was like five or six days straight. And I, my coach was telling me like, do not run. Like this was a life altering event for me. Like I, I felt like the rug of life had been ripped out from under me. I never thought he would leave me in this way at this time, like, uh, like ever, but especially like really right now, like (laughs) you serious. Um, so I was not taking care of myself. I was not sleeping. My diet was off. Like I was a bomb about to happen. Like if I had tried to train through this. So my coach is like, don't run. Like your calf acting up is helping you. It's protecting you. Like don't run. So I didn't for like five days. And then this is, I'm bouncing around, right? I'm trying to find my next place to stay because, you know, I'm staying with people temporarily. And when you have a dog, it's not as easy. And, you know, I didn't know how much he was going to fight me in our divorce. And it ended up being very amicable, but like, I was trying to keep my costs down too, because it's like, I don't know how much I'm going to end up like, I don't know how this is going to go. So um, just very transient. Like when you're thinking about how you would want to spend your final weeks of preparation for such a big race on such a public stage, like this is literally the opposite of how you would want this to go. And I mean, honestly, the fact that I can talk about this without getting emotional two years later is huge. Um, cause I was not ready to talk about this for a very long time. Uh, but I was finally able to get back to my training and I remember my first workout back, I was given kilometers. I don't remember what the exact workout was, but like, I felt horrible. I felt exhausted because you know, it wasn't that I had missed five days. It was that I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't sleeping. Um, everything felt hard, uh, but I didn't let it deter me. I literally said, I have two weeks. Um, I, you know, I have all this fitness in there and my coach is of course, reinforcing this in me, like emotionally supporting me so much through all of this. I'm so grateful to him. Uh, reminding me that like, it's all there. It hasn't gone away in five days or two weeks or whatever. Like it's still there for you. And so I was able to get back to training and was able to string together two weeks, get to the Olympic trials. And maybe it's, you know, and I know it's like, I was very fit. I was ready. Like my training on that tough terrain that I chose for myself showed I was ready for a very epic day. Um, you know, I, I couldn't be nervous for that race. 
there were so much bigger things going on in my life that honestly running seemed, I hate to say it, but trivial. It's like the pain that I'm about to experience in this race pales in comparison to what I'm experiencing in my, in my life. My entire life was just turned upside down. Like my ex-husband and I own two businesses together. He wanted to keep them. And I said, well, that's great, but I need to figure something else out. So my entire life was in flux and I didn't know what I was going to do, where I was going to live, honestly, because I didn't have time to figure that out. Like I'm trying to, you know, get to this race in one piece and then figure out everything else after. But as I started sharing with the people closest to me, friends, training buddies, acquaintances that had become friends through this mutual pursuit. And I shared with them what was going on. Like I never felt more love and support in my life. And the silver lining was learning just how loved I was. And that really helped me because I'm not someone who races well, like out to prove something to anyone or to get like revenge or like to channel anger. Like I I wouldn't be able to channel anger at him for what he put me through for what we went through and race. Well, that's exhausting to me, honestly, like that's not who I am. That's not my nature. I run best when I feel loved, supported, cared for. And I think that's true for most people. So I felt very crippled by what had happened to me in my personal life. And, you know, that shows up in, you know, paces feeling harder, like just feeling exhausted in all aspects of life. But I felt very uplifted as I shared what I was going through and what I had been going through, like with my people. And I don't think people realize just the impact they have of a kind word or, you know, a DM or a comment. And, you know, that's, that's like how I run my personal Instagram. It's like, if you're kind enough to leave me a comment, I'm going to reply to you because I appreciate you. And every person who supported me, whether they knew what I was going through or not, like it uplifted me and it fueled me. And I honestly say like everyone played a role in the day I had because I felt all the love, all the support that I didn't even know I had. Right. Or maybe I wouldn't have paid as much attention to if this hadn't happened, but getting to the start line, having the day I had, you know, going from unranked to 189th to 51st was such a ride. And after that performance and feeling, you know, having the performance I had and knowing the training that I had leading into that, like my coach and I are just very excited for the future. Now that I'm uh, in a much better place in my personal life. Uh, so I'm very excited for, for what's to come. Well, first off, thank you so much for sharing that. I know it's very emotional and it's raw and it's, um, it's not easy to talk about these kind of things, these kind of experiences. And there's never any good time to go through that kind of, uh, trauma in a relationship um, for either side. Um, but to have it happen right in the middle of, you know, everything you'd worked for just compounds and just adds just so much stress um, to everything. And, you know, moving around so much and not even sleeping and diet is probably in the shitter. Um, and, um, you know, it's amazing how sometimes when we actually 
open ourselves up and we're a little more vulnerable and we share some of our darkest or hardest times that we're going through, even with a very small group of people, how that can actually come back and be something that plays a key role in us moving forward. Because um, if you hadn't shared that, and it's very easy not to, it's very easy to just say, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to tell anybody, tell this to anybody. I'm not going to share this with anybody. Um, and if I do or I don't, it's up to me. It's my personal life. That's why it's called a personal life, right? So you had to make some decisions like that, who you were going to share it with, your coach, some training partners and other people. But the fact that they supported you and gave you the support you needed in love um, and helped you to feel loved at a time when you couldn't have needed it more, um, it helped to kind of bring you back around at a time when it seemed like there's no way you're going to be able to go down to Atlanta on that course. Um, and for people that don't know it, it isn't just the course and the elevation. Just that particular day was just so blustery. It was so windy. The wind was swirling around all the big buildings, the loop course, the way it's set up. It just seemed like the wind just kept whipping around and just constantly being in the face of the runners. It just never seemed to be a favorable wind. And the reason I know that is because I was running all over the course. So I know like if I was running around a corner to try to look for friends that were out there, it just seemed like, how is this possible? It just seemed like wherever I went, the wind was just in your face. And, you know, for people who don't understand the seedings process, so everybody runs a time to qualify. Um, and the faster your time is, the lower your bib number, the lower your seed number. So you came in seated 189th and you run, you know, your fastest marathon that day, you run your PR that day, 241.08, and you place 51st out of 390 finishers. So, you know, and you were seated, you know, you blew your seed time away. You destroyed it. And for anybody who doesn't understand what that is, if you're seated a hundredth and you come in a hundredth place, then you performed kind of around what you're supposed to do. Um, doesn't mean you had a bad day, a good day or anything else. That's just the way the seating works. And that's how you're ranked against the people that are coming into the course that day. But for you to have like outperformed by such an, a crazy margin on the toughest of days, on the hardest of courses, with all that going on, you know, in your personal life, it's it's remarkable. So I appreciate so much that um, you trusted me enough to share that with the Run Chats audience because somebody out there is always going through something like this in their life. Somebody is always in a spot where they feel there's no way out. I can't turn the situation around. I'm never going to feel good about myself again. Um, I'm never going to be happy again, or I'm never going to be able to overcome this, or what am I going to do, or um, or I'm the victim, you know, this is happening to me now, and I, I'm never going to be able to run a good race in the trials. There's a hundred ways, maybe an infinite number of ways that we can take this kind of information and allow it to just beat us into the ground and just give up. And late in the game, you know, when you let some people in and you trusted them enough to share what was going on, and they gave you back what you needed, you needed to feel the support. You needed to feel the love. You needed to feel that you had people that were in your corner, you know, that were there for you, regardless of what you ran in Atlanta. They were just there for you, right? They made you feel loved. They made you feel, you know, valued and needed. And, you know, that's the power of the story because um, we all get way too wrapped up in how many miles we need to run per week to run our best Boston and how many 
you know, how many marathon pace miles we need to run in our long run. And if we don't hit them all, and if we don't do our tempo run, you know, a couple of, you know, seconds per mile under what we're supposed to on our, on our workout sheet. Well, then of course, we're never going to run a good race. Well, you know what? That's all bullshit because it's cumulative, man. It's cycle after cycle. It's race after race. We get stronger. We build up or we build down, right? We wear ourselves down. Look at your body with all the stress you had. You tried to run the one thing in the world that should be able to let the stress go. And you have a problem with your calf because your body was just sending you like a warning, like, hey, don't try to do this right now. Because who knows, man, you could have started running and just threw everything into your running, man. You could have just said, I'm going to run 120 miles this week and had a stress fracture. I mean, there's a thousand ways that you could have pushed to try to deal with that pain and anxiety that you were experiencing and just push it all into the runs because you had to deal with it somehow. And, you know, thank goodness, you know, your coach was looking out for your best interests and you have this trust relationship with him. Um, and you had built so much fitness, you had done the work and kudos to you on, on, trying to find the specific routes because people make that mistake all the time. You know, they want to go run a really fast time in Berlin and they're running hill courses every day. Or they're running on trails every day. Well, that's great, you know, but you're not running in a trail race in Berlin. You're running on a flat course and a fast course. And so is Chicago. So like, what does the course expect? What does it demand for you to have your best day? That's what you have to do. You have to study it and prepare for it and then try to build your workouts around that. So that's a that's a great tip for everybody at home. Um, and that goes to whether you're running CIM, New York City, and that doesn't mean you're going to be able to go run the Verrazano Bridge, you know, because I live here. That's the only part of the course we can't run. Um, we we have the most, one of the most attended runs by like every single running group and Tracksmith hosts them and all the big brands host them is we run the last 10. It's called the last 10 because, you know, once you cross the bridge and come into New York City, you're at mile 16. So we literally run the last 10 miles of the course, you know, step for step. And it's just a great run. It's something we all do um, before New York City to get ready. Um, cause mentally, you know, you're seeing all those key spots that you're going to see and, you know, you can just pretend like you're going to close and, you know, hit the hard spots and get into the park. But, um, what an amazing amount of stuff that you were processing and dealing with, um, when you got out into the course that day, did it just feel like, I know you said the pressure was off, but did you just feel like, Hey man, I'm going to have some fun. <laughs> you know, Des Linden's over here, you know, Sarah Hall's over here, Alafine's over here. You know, we didn't even know what a badass Molly was at that point. You know, obviously we all knew Molly Huddle, but I mean, you know, Molly Seidel, like, I mean, like at that point where you just like fangirling, like look at all these amazing runners I'm around, or were you just like, Hey man, whatever it is, I'm just going to have a good time out here. You know, I was just so grateful to be on the line and I knew that fitness was in there. And like I said, I knew this kind of course I was built for and they have you line up like by your bib. Like I wasn't like on the start line. Right. Cause I'm, I didn't run the A standard to be there. I was 189th. And I actually think I started back further. I'm not sure. I did a post like back right after the Olympic trials about my progression, but you know, I started back and each checkpoint just reeled people in. Um, you know, I, I, I raced tactically. I knew people would go out way too fast. I knew they wouldn't adjust to the terrain. Like I, you can't run even splits on a race like that. Like you just cannot. So like I would run like a 550 mile, a 610, a 538, a 550, a 620. Like it didn't matter. Right. And like, I think overall I ran 608 average, but 
if you look at it, it's just adjusting to the terrain. And I just reeled people in. I just would catch groups and I just kept moving up. And there were a couple of times where I caught some people who I obviously knew their time coming in. And I'm like, man, I should not be near this person. Then I was like, stop, you should, like you belong. We're all here. And then I, I would realize I can run faster. Like this group right here that I'm with of like five people or 10 or whatever, like I need to, I need to keep moving, keep moving up is what I kept saying to myself, keep moving up. And so I did, and I didn't allow that like recognition of people who I knew had faster times on paper to like, it's, it would come in, the thought would come, but I would dismiss it. And I remember like, I wasn't that far behind Jordan Hesse. I remember seeing her at one point and I was like, well, she's having a bad day and I'm having a great day. That's what's happening. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I just felt, I felt great the whole time, honestly. And the crowd support was amazing from start to finish because of the way that course is set up you know, you're doing loops. So I heard my mom and sister came, um, my coach was there. I knew a bunch of people, friends who were cheering and I could like distinctly hear them. So I heard them multiple times and it was just wonderful to, to feel that crowd support. It's the best crowd support race I've ever been to, um, including majors, honestly, it was just an amazing day. And I remember thinking to myself, this would be such a fun race to spectate, but I'm, happier to be racing it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a fun race to spectate because I'm usually racing and people are usually watching me, but I was there spectating and I enjoyed the hell out of it. It was, um, the energy level was crazy. Um, you could just see the course taking its toll, the wind taking its toll on runners. You could just see them when they were really starting to struggle late. Um, and then you could see the runners like Galen who just like ripped it late and just like held back and just like tore through people and just ran away from everybody. And I remember Molly and Alafine, like how they were attacking late and everybody else was just like going the other way. And even Des, as strong as she is, you know, she tried to close for third and she, she just couldn't get there. You know, she didn't miss by much. She was only, I don't know if it was like 10 seconds or 12 seconds or whatever, but, um, such a tough course, the wind made it tougher but incredibly awesome spectator event. Um, the energy is amazing. And for you, your first time making the trials, because everybody I, that I've had on the show who was part of it, um, you know, I was there in the hotel. So, but I didn't get to go to the technical meetings and stuff, but I was there with my friends who did. So like I'm there and they all have their badges on it. That's got to feel like insanely cool. I mean, you got an Olympic trials, you know, badge on and, you know, you're going into these meetings and you're getting all this cool stuff. I mean, what was that like for anybody out there that might be listening at home and has dreams of running? Because I know that it was amazing to watch it, but you were there, you were in those rooms, you're in those meetings. You got to be there with all the other people who made this big goal come to life. What was it like for you? So I had gotten a taste of that being on a very small scale being in elite starts leading into the Olympic trials. So, you know, there's perks at different races that you get for being in in elite starts like that, but this was magnified so much. I mean, like Nike gave us free stuff, like Martin gave us free stuff. You know, it was, it was awesome. Really. It was quite an experience to have all these brands there supporting us. And it was worth all the early alarms, the, the highs, the lows in the journey to get there. It was the best experience. And, you know, I hope to be there again, um, for 2024. So, 
yeah, I just, I had, I had such a great time. I really did. Yeah. Well, it's the experience of a lifetime and, you know, made even more meaningful by just all of the, the difficulties that you had to go through there late, you know, you know, in your own personal life, um, to make it through and, and to, to come through and, and just to have such an exceptional race with all that going on in your life is just, uh, a testament to your resilience, man. You're strong. You're really strong. Um, and your mindset is going to be the difference. And as you keep going forward, I mean, you have the physical abilities, you'll work, you'll grind, you do all that, but it's really what I find separates the people that continue to, to peak and keep getting better and keep getting to new levels. It's the people who have strong mindsets. It's the people who really learn how to believe in themselves or combine that with a coach who believes strongly in them or a small group of people who believe in them. Maybe it's a small training group that you're working with a few athletes. You see how great Nazalid and Bowerman and, you know, all these groups that work together. There's a reason why it works well, because, you know, you're doing these hard workouts together, you know, so you're kind of building each other's confidence. Each time you do these hard track workouts or long runs with pace or, you know, tempo runs, like you're kind of fortifying and, you know, building your confidence, um, not only for yourself, but for your, for the other athletes that you're training with. So, um, it's exciting stuff. Um, and it's amazing. Um, I can't believe, you know, in four years, you know, from 303 to running 241 on a course that's like 50 million times harder than CIM. So um, we know that the 230s are there. Like, it's not even a question. And it's funny because you had picked out 236, like long before any of this even started. Like, you know, who knows where that number came from, but obviously that number is there in your head. So somewhere out there, you're you're going to get there. I mean, have, have you and your coach talked specifically about like what's next, like slowly building to, you know, certain time goals or races, or does he want you to work on speed more? Like what what is your overall plan right now for what's for what's what's happening for the future? So I'm racing in Boston. Boston Marathon is my next race. And I'm in the pro field, which is awesome. I'm super thrilled, honored that they're having me in the pro field. And it was my Olympic trials performance that, that got me in there. Uh, that that's my qualifier. So I was doing a lot of high mileage aerobic during the pandemic when races were not happening and was training for ultra this past year. Now I am back training for the road marathon. Feels nice to be back. And so that's my focus. I'm racing Boston. I plan to be in low to mid 230 marathon shape. And the thing I love about Boston though is it's about place. It's like time is secondary to me in that in that race. It would be awesome to hit the Olympic trials qualifier there, but for me it's more about placing as an American. So that's really where my focus is and you know that's what I got to do at the Olympic trials was focus on place. And so I'm very excited to race. And I don't think Boston is an easy course. It's hilly. And I know the first part is more downhill than up, but like the hills start at mile 16 and weather is usually a factor. And I'm excited to race people and not a clock. And yes, I plan to be in that, you know, sub 237 shape, but, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's place. And if later in the year I need to go somewhere else and run a, a more favorable course or something like that, like, you know, I will, I will do that. But, you know, I have the confidence to, 
you know, assuming good weather and, you know, everything like to, to go for it at Boston. Uh, but my focus will be racing people, um, not so much the clock. And I'm really looking forward to that. I love it. It's, uh, it's my favorite course. Um, so I, I've run 10 Bostons and then I, I ran in the 99th, I ran in the hundredth. Um, I ran 241, which is my fastest Boston in the hundredth. So, um, I was 36 then. So it's a long time ago, but I got to run the 125th last year. So there's only a handful of people around that can say they ran in the hundredth and the 125th. So I'm really hoping that I get to run to the 150th too, which is, you know, another 25 years away. I mean, I want to be running until I'm not here anymore. So, um, that's it. a big goal, but I know a lot about that course. Um, and sure the profiles are everywhere and everything. It's just, I know a lot about that course. I can give you all sorts of tips, but the same way you planned, the same, um, investigative work you did, the preparation work, it will serve you well. Um, because people think it's all downhill beginning. It's not, it's rolling. Yes, it is more downhill for sure. And you need to account for that. And you just need to make sure that you're strong and can absorb that and handle that. But when you turn at the firehouse, which is like, you know, mile 17, you got the three, you got the series of Newton Hills and everybody talks about heartbreak, but the first uh, set of Newton Hills is, is definitely the hardest one. Um, and they're not that hard. It's just that, you know, for most of the race, you've been going down and back up and down and back up and flat. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, now we're going to run some hills for the next four miles. But then when you bomb down the hill after the top of Boston College, after you scale Heartbreak Hill, you know, at mile 21, you got five miles from there. You're coming down a huge hill at Cleveland Circle and you got a five mile straight run to the finish where your only real hill is coming up a little, that little exit ramp, you know, before, you know, you get to that last, the last two turns, you know, Hereford, Hereford and Boylston. So it's a great track and I love the strategy and I'm excited to see uh, what's going to happen. I'll see you up there. I'll be there. So hopefully I'll see you up there and you'll have an awesome race and uh, it'll be great. You'll have your bottles on the tables. All that's going to be good. And um, I'm sure, you know, you can have some people out on the course somewhere. You know, there's many spots out there where you can have people out there where you can see them and get sight lines. And, um, you know, for us, I don't have bottles on the table, but I've had friends many times hit me with a Morton bottle somewhere. In New York, it's easy for me. I can, you know, have a couple of places and just be like, be on this corner, be on that corner. Uh, but it is a game changer to have your bottles out there. It really, it really helps a lot. Mm -hmm. I think there's rules about that when you're qualifying for trials about people aiding you in that way. Um, I remember something about that when I was called, when I, we were trying to qualify the last time, it's like, you couldn't support each other too much in that way. Like you, either the race is supporting you or not. Um, but I do get bottles at Boston, so that's not a concern. Um, yeah. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about it. And I'm not, I'm not making the trials at, <laughs> at 61 next week. So I won't be <laughs> making the Olympic trials at 61, but, um, yeah, I mean, Boston's the best, uh, it's my favorite and, um, you'll have a love affair with that race. You, if you, you're running the pro field, which is just amazing, um, Stoke level, um, you're going to be lining up in Des and, and just a crazy field. Molly's running. I mean, everybody's running. I mean, it's a crazy stacked elite field. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll have somebody there to get some shots of you on the starting line or when well, the race photographers take like 50 million pictures, you'll, you'll have shots cause they're always shooting the starting line and there's video and it's on television. You'll, you'll have all kinds of opportunities. So hopefully, uh, plus, you know, when you're starting in the pro field, you're the only ones going 
in the beginning. So like, trust me, every race photographer on earth is out there shooting. So you're, you're going to end up with some, some stud pictures for sure. And, uh, it's such a different race than, you know, what's happening half hour later. Uh, because you know, the women, especially we start and like, there's not other people like if you get dropped by the group, like you could have a very long, lonely race and it's pro fields are so different. I know. Cause I've been in several at this point, you know, you're racing people, not a clock. So you're not always looking to like run an even race. It's, it's very, very different than, you know, I'm going for this time goal. I'm starting with all these people around my time. It's, it's a very different tactical race. And I love that about it because, you know, the pack will surge and you surge with them and you might not have done that, you know, if it was just you focused on your time goal, but when you're, when you're racing people like that, it's just, it's different. It's very, uh, running in it's like true form of not worrying about the clock, but just people. And I love that. And I can't wait for it. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I have a lot of friends who run in the elite starts in New York, Boston and stuff like that. And yeah, they've told me the exact thing that you've mentioned, like they're going to fight. They're going to hang on to whatever small group they're in because they do not want to be running all the way up first Avenue completely by themselves with no one there. It's a bizarre experience. It's nothing like running with three or four other women and you're kind of a little mini pack and you know, the crowds get more excited because there's a couple of people when you're alone. It's one thing if you're leading the race, that's one thing, but, and the lead car is there, but it's very different if you're gapped and you are alone and it can wear on you psychologically versus like, you know, I got to get to this group. I got to hang on to this group. So that's great that you've already learned that stuff from your experiences, you know, when you've been able to run in the pro fields before and, um, well, super excited to see how you, uh, how it turns out for you in Boston, man. I hope it, uh, hope it all goes to plan and you crush it and finish like as high up as you're dreaming of. And, and of course, um, smash a new, PR with a 230 number attached to it. So that'll be exciting. Thank you. It's, it's happening at some point, but you know, the timing, we have to just surrender to the race day, right? Like, you know, it's happening and, you know, prepare, prepare what you can and hopefully it, it manifests itself on the clock on the race that you want it to. <laughs> of course, of course. So we talked a lot about your running, but I can't let us roll out of here without getting the chance to talk to you a little bit about your coaching um, specifically, cause I know it really matters to you a lot. Um, you're very invested in it and I think you get as much satisfaction or maybe even more when your athletes perform or outperform what their expectations are, what they're doing. So talk a little bit about your coaching before we roll out of here, how you got started with that, how it's working out and, you know, kind of what those relationships are like with you at your athletes. So it started years ago. I would write training plans for people and give them to them. And then I started selling them. And I didn't, I didn't love that because then they're off doing their thing. And, you know, I, I don't hear from them. I don't know how they're doing. And, you know, they race great. They achieve their goal. That's awesome. But like, I wanted something more. I wanted closer connection to people to really like help them achieve their goals. And so I started one-on-one coaching, uh, gosh, 2018. Yeah. 2018. I started on my own, just a handful of people mostly found through Instagram or like I knew in my life. And 
I was doing that for a while and I was hesitant to join any type of coaching company because I never wanted it to be like, I didn't want to be filled up with people that I never talked to. And I see a lot of that. And it was concerning to me because that's not what I want. I'm not interested in mass coaching people. Um, It's my second job. I do it because I love it. And I want to know these people because if you don't, it's not, as we've discussed, it's not just a training plan. It's knowing the human behind the runner. We're runners. I always say we're humans first, runners second. So I loved working. I love working with like a smaller group of people and really making that change for them. And I was hesitant to join any type of coaching company. Uh, I was doing my own thing. It was great, but I did want more run coaching clients and I just didn't have time to obviously like market myself, but I also, you know, market myself as a run coach is what I mean. So I, my coach introduced me to Mary Johnson actually at the Olympic trials. And from the moment I met her, I just knew I had found a home at lift run perform because her philosophy is so similar to mine. Like it was just such a natural fit. We had a conversation there and I remember we just kept talking and I just loved the philosophy that we share of caring so intimately about the people you coach and being invested in them and um, quality over quantity. Um, And so I ended up starting working for Lift Run Perform in 2020. And so I've been there for two years now. And I absolutely love working with other coaches. Like that has been such a benefit. And I wanted that too. Like I wanted to have a network of coaches that I could work with and ask questions and co-coach with, uh, that, that has been just of such benefit to me and to them, all of us working together, this whole community. So I love that. And that's the way I've always wanted to coach. And I coach remotely. I have people all over the U S I have international. It's, I get, more satisfaction and joy out of helping someone achieve their goals than I ever get from my own, truly. Because you've trusted me to help you achieve something that is so important to you. And I am here to guide you. You're the one who's doing the work. Like I'm proud of everyone. I love everyone. Like whether whether you're a six-hour marathoner, whether you don't race at all, you have no desire to race, you just want someone to help you be fit and do something great for your body because running is a gift for all of us. It's what helps us mentally, physically, everything. So like whether you race or not, I love you and support you equally to those who race all the time and want to chase fast goals. So I coach a wide range of people. And I actually really like that because I find inspiration in all of them, whether you're a six hour marathoner, you're wanting to be Q, never race at all, coming back postpartum, um, you know, women who want to break three hours in the marathon, women who want to qualify for the Olympic trials next cycle or this cycle, like wherever you are in that spectrum that I coach, like I care about you because your goals are important to you. And whether you race or not, I'm proud of you for just training and whatever the time on the clock is like, I'm proud of you for just lining up and doing this balancing running with the rest of your life. So coaching has without question enriched my life in so many ways. And I'm so grateful that, you know, this is what I get to do for fun, uh, you know, every day, every week. And I can't imagine my life without it, honestly. 
Well, that's awesome. So on your Instagram page, Eat, Run, and Be Merry, is there a link to your coaching from Instagram or do you have a website or how does it work? It Lift, Run, Perform. Yes. Oh, lift, Run, Perform. Okay. But the, they can they get to a link from, from that coaching from your Instagram page or do they have to just go to Lift, lift Run, Perform? They go to Lift, Run, Perform. Um, and I have it linked in my bio. I have a link tree uh, to Lift, Run, Perform's website. Yeah. They, that's what I was going with. Because in the in the bio and the episode right up, I'll put the link in there. So this way the links don't come through on Instagram, as you know, but they do transfer over onto Facebook. So, um, cause my podcasts go to all of those places. So if anybody's out there, they listen to this episode and they're like, yep, you know, I want, I want to work with Mary as a coach, you know, they can be like, okay, let me click this link. I mean, it's one of the things that's annoying about Instagram, but I understand it, you know, but on Facebook, yes. And I have Linktree also. So I have all kinds of things that are set up there, but that's great. And, um, your passion for running and wanting to help others, it obviously comes through. Um, and I appreciate you sharing your, uh, your running journey. Um, it is no doubt going to inspire a lot of people who are going to listen to this episode. So I'm so excited and I appreciate you so much coming on and sharing all of it. It's been super fun getting to know you and talking to you. Yes, this has been a lot of fun. And thank you for having me on. Cool. Well, I'm going to, we're all going to be paying close attention to what happens up in Boston and anybody who's running up there, make sure you uh, say hello to Mary if you see her, you know, at any of the race events or anything uh, happening. I always set up a shakeout up there. So maybe I'll organize something. You're going to have things to do with elite meetings and technical stuff. But um, if there's a chance, maybe we'll uh, we'll connect with uh, some of the Run Chats audience while we're up there. That would be fun. Um, but we close out every episode telling everybody to keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door, and always remember to stay in the fight. Wow. So inspired by Mary Denholm's journey. What an amazing ride she's been on. She's so positive. She's so strong. And her physical talents, her aerobic talents, her running talents have been there and developing. I think what's really um, inspiring to see take hold is her mental strength, her resiliency and fortitude of kind of taken a little bit longer, which is often the case. I think the belief of her coach and her, her close running friend and training partners that she shared so many of these experiences with trying to get to the line in Atlanta and how Mary shares her goals um, and tries to encourage others to dream big and get after their goals and just chase big things in life and to cut people out of your life that aren't on board with that. It's wonderful advice. It's sage advice. And I really enjoyed our convo immensely. I think there's so many practical tips in this one about just being tough when the chips are down and, you know, going after the things that matter most. And as her college coach preached to her, having balance, um, how important that is in your life to be happy. Um, and it keeps us uh, successful when we're going after these really difficult goals. So super stoked to see what Mary does up in Boston. I'll be up there myself running and I hope she has a big day. I hope she smashes it and hits that new trial standard and nails herself a new PR. She dreamed of a 236 time in the beginning of this journey. So it would be, you know, totally apropos if she gets it done. So I uh, hope you all enjoy this convo as much as we did Keep sharing on Instagram, and if you have the extra time to pop on Apple Podcasts and write a quick review, it really helps us get new people tuning into Run Chats and hearing inspiring stories like Mary's, and also helps me get more great guests like Mary to come on and share. 
So appreciate you all doing those uh, key steps. Keep lacing them up. Keep getting out the door, my friends. And always remember to stay in the fight. Peace out, my friends.